the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode 282. I'm Paul Spain. I'm Craig Young. And I'm Lillian Grace. Welcome along. Great to have you both joining me here today. Craig, maybe we can start with you. And um, I mean, you've been on the podcast once before, so you maybe remind listeners where you fit into this world of technology and telecommunications in New Zealand. Sure. I'm the chief executive of Two Ends, the Telecommunications Users Association of New Zealand. If you want to the long title. Been doing that for about 18 months now, but I've been, I worked it out the other day. Been in telecommunications for 17 years. That's, nice. a, that's a fair while. So you should know one or two things about One about or two things, yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah. And Lillian? Yes, so I'm the chief executive of Figure NZ. We're working to create a data democracy and I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. And I'm also on the Data Futures Partnership Working Group that Cabinet set up last year and uh, the New Zealand Innovation Partnership and on the board of Te Punaha Matatini, which is the new centre of research excellence that Sean Hendy has been he- heading up and started about a year ago. Cool. Well, it's a privilege to have you both here. Thank you for, uh, for joining this episode. Now, let's, let's jump in. First up, there's been a bit of coverage in the last few days, started off, I think, in uh, the New York Times, around podcasting and how podcasting is doing really well, but uh, podcasters maybe not quite so uh, quite so happy with Apple. I might speak to this one to, to start with. <laughs> It's it's kind of curious. We've just had Google in the last uh, in the last few days who have jumped into uh, podcasting themselves finally in terms of really opening up the Google Play Store to be able to cater to podcasts. It really for a, for a long time, it's been over a decade that Apple have been the main ones that have been championing podcasts. And when we look at podcast stats, most people globally that are listening to podcasts tend to be on an iOS device. That is, has been changing, but it still uh, tends to be 50% of the audience is listening f- from from an Apple device. And yeah, it's kind of curious that, that there's this little bit of a, a beat up on, on Apple and um, their, the resources that they're putting into podcasting. I think it's probably fair to say that we haven't seen a whole lot of change from Apple in recent years. There hasn't been anything, any new innovation, any major new innovation really around podcasts. Yeah, well, it was interesting though in reading some of the stuff that it, the complaints almost weren't about the technology as much as the way that they engage with Apple and the fact that they only have one person that they're allowed to talk to about um, communicating with Apple and and not being able to get the data on how people are using things. And I thought that was quite fascinating that the complaint wasn't, oh, there aren't new fancy features. It's actually, it's hard for us to, to work through this model. Yeah, and that's that's curious because there is, there is some stats that Apple give to the, the top podcasters. And I think because with Podcast New Zealand, we've sort of been the, the main publisher of, of podcasts here uh, locally outside of traditional broadcasters. I know we've had access to that for some time. And you know we found the engagement actually to be to be okay, but I can understand if you're a really big organisation would love to be able to get more data and more stats. And there's you know there's been that that point that hey Apple uh, don't allow things like password well um, paid podcast episodes and a few other bits and pieces. They don't feed back uh, stats around you know how far people are listening through podcasts, which mm. you know, technically they could do mm. because they which is super they, they, valuable. They, they own the apps, yeah. So there there is some stuff there that it would be really nice to have. But on the flip side, um, they've put in far more resources into this stuff than anybody else has. Look at Microsoft yeah. when they were doing their Zoom stuff, and you know that with the Windows platform, you know, they had podcast uh, app, and they were very light on resource. They had they had one literally one person, whereas Apple's got a lot more than that. And I've you know I've engaged with with a number of different people from Apple on the on the podcasting front. I've been up and met them in Cupertino, so they you know they're mm. quite open to uh, to communications. I think, but yeah, they are limited in terms of their resourcing. Well, they really created the market if you think about it. I mean, you go back when you started listening to podcasts, the easiest way to get them was on iTunes because to try and get them any other way was quite complicated. I remember getting my first Android phone and trying to figure out, well, how am I going to listen to my favourite podcast? I don't have iTunes anymore, (laughs) so I've got to figure out some other app. And even if you think about some of these long-running podcasts that I listen to, as well as this one, of course. Of course. Leo Laporte and his Twit network, you know, he's I don't know what he said the other day, seven or ten app 
apps that are on people's phones that you can listen to as podcasts. But I'm sure that iTunes is still the number one way that people will listen to those things. Yeah, I'm intrigued now because I'm hearing your feedback that that you've found the engagement with with Apple to be quite good, and then to to hear this um like some of the articles are trying to provide like a cohesive view of podcasters are up in arms and complaining like who um who's been corralling the the podcasters to understand what the voice is like is there an industry body group for podcasters or is it just a small slice that are having these complaints that's quite interesting it doesn't really say where the the voices kind of come from about the the issues yeah i think there was some commentary that uh, apple had got together with some of the the top podcasters having some engagement down that down that track but yeah i'm not not sure of the full story there i mean there are varying things that are starting to gather around uh podcasting but in terms of a cohesive sort of industry mm. association and so on and, and you know so many podcasts are, are hobbyists and the you know the very large majority of podcasts aren't uh, monetized in any in any form at all yeah. and most of them aren't monetized to any any great degree so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting world the podcasting world, um, and I guess and so based on that probably most podcasters would have zero direct content uh, contact with Apple, so they they wouldn't see the sort of stats and so on that we can get access to. Um, although you know we have our own uh, stats that are, and you know most cases are richer than what Apple would offer anyway because they don't host the podcast. It's just that people would subscribe through their iPhones yeah. and so on. Yeah. So yeah, it's an it's an interesting dilemma. I do think we ne- we need more we need more information. There's a huge amount of room for innovation, but at this stage, because Apple aren't monetizing it themselves, what they do put in, I think, is is appreciated by um, by the podcasting community. The fact that they do you know they do charts, they feature podcasts, they break it down into you know local areas. So we've got a New Zealand area. It's not just some you know big global uh, view of it. I think that, the monetization question is, is is the big one because Apple's not making or taking any money out of it. Where's the commercial driver for them, and how does it fit with their subscription model around? music you know these days so i remember when i first listened to podcasts you know there was lots of attempts to figure out how to monetize these things and i think the initial podcasts that i listened to were calling for donations from listeners to actually help pay for it and then as they've got bigger they've been able to do advertising and stuff so it's not a free thing is it to do podcasts together no i mean it definitely takes a lot of time and in building podcast new zealand i guess what we're working towards is you know podcasts that will be able to fund themselves we can't run a, a studio without money but there are lots of different models in terms of what people are using and uh there are those like uh, tom Merritt, who's in los angeles with the daily tech news show he's got a big enough audience that he's able to fund that entirely off donations and and to do yeah, reasonably well for himself. Uh, I think on Patreon, last time I looked, he was around eighteen thousand US a month. Yeah, you know, coming in off that, and that you know goes to you know varying things and contributors and so on. But it, you know, it proves it is possible to do it through that track. But there will probably be, you know, the number that have completely funded that way um, is pretty small globally. Yeah. And so there are there are a mix of, a mix of models. And now that Google have got into it, it's going to be really curious in terms of what their plays are and what they do i imagine they'll be wanting to uh wanting to monetize for themselves pretty quickly and that you'll be able to promote your podcast and uh get you know featured on their site by spending money rather than just by being the best or the most popular uh content so that will be a curious one to watch Mm. all right now moving on to space yes this is this is kind of cool we've got some good stuff going on with the move of into a commercial i guess how do you put it i guess a lot of commercial activity as far as um, space and and rockets is concerned and there was a great uh, video the uh, blue origin that was posted and this was the rocket actually coming down from space coming down to to land and and of course we've had um, spacex who have had their second landing onto a successful landing because they've had uh, <laughs> they've had they've had a number of attempts landing their rocket at sea with the uh, the the Falcon 9 landing that on a on a floating platform 
um, which I think must give them a lot of confidence because they weren't quite actually quite so sure about this particular landing. I think they they were saying with this particular one because of certain circumstances, they weren't they weren't rating their uh, their chances of of it surviving very highly. But um, now we've got this reality, you know, commercial companies that are able to launch rockets and then they're actually reusable. Um, this is this is pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it's amazing how I guess because you know compared to when the public sector are doing work like this, with the private sector can just they can they can just dump rockets into the sea if it doesn't work and just get up and try again without having to justify any failure and. What I'm finding fascinating is almost it feels like they're moving so fast and you suddenly it's like, oh my goodness, there's another launch to watch. And also how it feels to actually be sitting there watching it live and Mm. you feel like you're watching the boundaries of what humans can do being pushed out right in front of your face. And it's so unusual to be able to be able to kind of observe that. And it's, it's interesting that it's a, you know, private sector companies, commercial organizations but yet we're all you know when we're all sitting there watching and tweeting at the same time feeling like we're part of something that's really special well look i'll put my hand up i'm a space geek from a long way back and i remember you know the first space shuttle in 1981 and i was reading a book at the weekend about how star wars has taken over the universe this is a very thick book but the first couple of chapters are about the original flash gordon and buck rogers tv series and i'm not old enough to remember those but I do remember the Flash Gordon movie that came out, which was pretty poor. But, you know, we used to think rocket ships that could land by themselves, we didn't know that would happen. And now we're actually seeing it. You know, things that you only saw in science fiction taking off vertically and then coming back down vertically is stuff that Stories was made of, and now we're doing it. And not just once, but now twice and three times. So where does this end? Well, I suppose it doesn't. Well, we, yeah, it doesn't. And no. and then to have Elon Musk going and hiring a costume designer to start cutting out the people um, getting the spacesuits, like it's just uh, it's a whole different way of doing it. It's so exciting. Like it's one of the most exciting things that we're able to to watch, isn't it? It's well, ki- it's kind of interesting how the, uh, the that he's getting that that inspiration from the movies and from. You know, TV and science fiction to um, pull pull back into uh, into what they're doing with those costumes. It seems like a really cool idea. Well, I can't I, wait to see what they come up with. Yeah, but I hope they've en- they've employed some engineers as well. <laughs> yeah, <for> the suits. <laughs> you want to make sure they work as well. But but it's funny how that's almost a trend that we see with technology, isn't it? That you know, Mission Impossible kind of movies and other movies that actually the technology then is what comes down the track in reality um, a decade or two or whatever later. And, yeah, it feels like this is happening again. What about yeah. the, the risk factors? Are we going to just get so used to this stuff that we uh, we forget about the risk? Because, Craig, you and I were chatting, well, we were all chatting a little bit about the, um, the the first space shuttle. And, you know, there were, there were some tragedies there with those early uh, early space shuttles. And the reality is that we've seen some some explosions on launch pads and on on landing with with these rockets there's still a fair bit of risk around it isn't there huge amount i've read uh, several books again it comes back to being a space geek on the apollo missions and the race for space with the russians the russians had multiple rockets blow up on the launch pads before they could get one into the sky so um, these guys doing what they're doing. Okay, we've had a couple of landings in the sea, but it's still amazing to see two, in this case, two billionaires, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, putting their own money into this thing to make it work. And then, of course, you once you put a person on the on a rocket, the risk factor goes up amazingly. And we only have to think back to Challenger, which blew up, what was it, 70-something seconds after it took off? And then it was Columbia, I think, was the other one which um, broke up on re-entry, which an interesting side effect was actually the first space shuttle that went to, uh, into space, actually. So there is risk, but then we have risk every day, mm. don't we? We cross the road, we fly on aeroplanes, we just manage it, don't we? Yeah, and I guess you you choose that. What I find fascinating is if, um, you know, if you're faced with going on one of those first flights, you know that you're either going to come back and your life will be changed and you'll be a hero – or you'll be dead, and it's quite an interesting. <laughs> so your life's going to be changed. Yeah, either, either way, either way. <laughs> pretty black and white. Yeah, and um, to be like, oh, which one? You know, almost flip the coin. Um, yeah, take a take a certain type of risk person to choose that. 
And I mean, it sounds like there's some money to be made out of out of this stuff as well. Uh, I think SpaceX is they've got what a 2.6 billion US uh, contract in terms of uh, getting crew up to the International Space Station. So they've yeah. they've they've got to get this stuff right. But I don't know, yeah, how it would feel to be the first person sitting on one yes. of these uh, one of these uh, i think it's going to be the um the the dragon which is going to be taking taking people up to uh, the space station it's Craig, um, would you do some it? scary stuff i can't tell if craig is looking terrified or like he wishes he was on it i'd love to do it but i don't think i'd want to be the first one which ship would make you feel safest which <laughs> like I think 2 3 4 10 maybe 20 yeah yeah 20 20 times <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are people that will do it, aren't there? There there have always been test pilots, people, Chuck Yeager, those sorts of people that have always pushed the boundary and they'll find someone that would just love to take on the risk. And they will will love it and they will excel at it. And you're right, they'll either become a hero or they won't come back. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because um, I think Derek Handley's sort of lining up um, for uh, the Virgin Galactic flights. So there's, there'll be, you know, even those there'll be, there's going to be a level of risk, you know. But I guess, um, you know, what they're doing is slightly lower risk than um, than going f- further afield. But mm. uh, there, there's still a, there's still a bit of risk oh, with all this totally. new stuff. Totally, it makes you think of, you know, just even in the tech space when you use the term fast follower. I'd probably rather be a fast follower <laughs> than a than a leader in this space. Yes. Yep. In terms of personally going up there. And no doubt they're going to do plenty of unmanned uh, missions first as well. So even the the person jumping in first time round, they they know that these things have actually gone up a number of times before they have to jump in. But yeah, um, which which you know should make it a little bit easier. But it's still a reality that you might not come back. Yeah, like I even find it funny when you're on one of the new planes or the Dreamliner that, um, last year. And you're sitting there going, this hasn't been, like it hasn't gone across the ocean that many times yet. Um, and do you think it's plastic as yeah. well? You sort of think <laughs> that sort of thing? I, I'm amazed when I'm thinking about in New Zealand now, you know, in New Zealand and Jetstar fly these A320s. They're all flown by joysticks and by fly-by-wire. So I was imagining the other day flying into Wellington, it was a little bit bumpy, and I was thinking, the pilot at the front doesn't have a wheel anymore. He's got a little joystick that he's just moving with his hand. That must be an interesting concept for pilots to get themselves around from. You know, they're controlling a rather large aircraft with what I would normally use to play a game. Yes. Well, we're going to have to get used to this world because uh, our control is slowly disappearing into the hands of the machines, isn't it? Yeah, and, largely you know, it is. It won't, won't be too long before that actually becomes normal for most of us that uh, taking any form of uh, transport because if it's your personal car or if it's sitting on a bus or what have you yeah there's um yeah i found it really fascinating i was talking to someone earlier today uh, who i'd guess um in in their 60s and and they said that they aren't they don't really they're not super confident in driving but they have to at the moment and then their comment was oh, I can't wait till these automated car things turn up, mm. then I won't have to drive. And I was gobsmacked because I thought that they would terrify a lot of people. But instead, um, some are thinking, oh, that's awesome. I don't have to take control anymore. It's up to, to somebody else or something else. That's a really good point, actually, Lillian. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. But certainly, Neither yes, if you I. think about, I mean, if I think about, um, you know, people in my own family who are still driving who I wish they weren't actually <laughs> and I wish they were in an autonomous v- exactly. controlled vehicle because I'd feel a lot safer about what they were doing yeah. that's right yeah that is a really good I point know. Mm. have you told them yeah no but I might go and buy them do you want to name yeah. them yeah. <laughs> we won't make any announcements or name anybody uh, on this show we don't want to incriminate Craig mm. um but we will move on to talking about reality TV because that's a subject that we all love to talk about, oh, isn't it? Oh, right. <laughs> no. Um, Netflix, they are jumping into reality TV. Not really, yeah. It's it's a bit, it, just seemed, it seems a little bit sad, but I guess there must be some reality TV that's okay. I am curious. I am curious to see what, what Netflix will pull out of the hat because they've done okay with some of their content, some of their own yeah. content so far. They mm. make awesome things often. So, but even oh, just it doesn't look great. <laughs> so you've had a bit of a read about Ultimate Beastmaster, which will feature Sylvester Stallone. What do you think? Yeah, or well, actually, when I was looking at it, you just think 
in general, the larger trends of so much reality TV and we all sit there and when we talk about it, we judge it and say it's rubbish, we should have better things to watch. And yet it is clearly what people choose to watch often is to gravitate towards reality TV. And it reminds me of even like the mainstream um, media articles and how it's all clickbait and stuff. And there's some, it's almost like there's a there's a quite a, dis, a difference between what we intellectually say we want or we should want and then what our behaviour kind of gravitates to. And so I just look at this, the ultimate beast master, um, and, and think what on earth is wrong with us? So, yeah, it, it looks looks rather interesting. It's an athletic competition uh, series. Um, Sylvester, Stallone, Sylvester Stallone is producing it, but he's actually not appearing in it, and the executive producer is from The Biggest Loser. So, yeah, it doesn't, um, doesn't sound that great, does it? Not really. It, it like will find a following, though. I mean, reality the, television follow. You know, what was Mark, one of Mark Weldon's last things that he did at MediaWorks? He launched... Uh, the rebrand of Channel 4 into a reality TV yeah. um, channel. So, you know, later in the year we're going to have a full reality channel TV. And the thing that scares me is that, and I understand how it works, but, you know, we, we all call for more local programming. Well, all those local reality shows like The Bachelor count towards our local content um, numbers. So... The local content number doesn't necessarily measure quality. I'm not going to make any judgment on The Bachelor or people who watch it, um, but it does count towards that local number. Oh, The Beastmaster won't because it's done in America. But Yeah, and I yeah. guess from Netflix's perspective, if this uh, helps fund their network and they can spend less to make it than what they're getting out yeah. of it, um, then it actually you know flows back in and probably benefits all Netflix subscribers and puts us in a position we can just watch what we want and maybe some of the other content gets subsidized by this if it's successful yeah and that that always fascinates me because it's clearly not reality (laughs) like it's it's like anything but it's like a poorly scripted kind of badly acted drama Now, last week we did go into a bit of discussion around Bitcoin and uh, Craig Wright, who was uh, basically saying he was Satoshi Nakamoto, the identity behind Bitcoin. Um, since then, we have, and he promised to uh, to provide extraordinary proof to uh, to back up his uh, his claims he seems to have sort of stepped back from all of that and it's gone away so we are we are none the wiser apparently i have a friend in wellington she owns 0.04 bitcoins i think she told me the other day i can't remember we worked it out it was 16 no maybe it was 24 dollars new zealand dollars she was really upset that this craig white had said he was the founder because she wants it to be a social anarchist or a, a you know social justice person who's created this alternative currency and so a businessman out of australia really didn't fit with what she wanted <laughs> the, the creator to be yeah and it, and it didn't it didn't it didn't sound super right anyway um so yeah that's so craig wright wasn't right well we will we may never know we may, may never know the reality because he hasn't said it's not him but yeah i don't uh, i'm not sure that the evidence was compelling enough well, he stepped back, didn't he? He stepped back and said, I'm not going to provide you with the code that I said I would have provided you with. So that opens up all sorts of questions as to mm. who started it. And, mm. Yeah. Um, now, the Herald have published uh, a story on Monday titled, Kiwi's Cat Makes Walking Electric. What on earth is this all about? It looks really weird because the, the story I looked at, it looks like, you remember those little sque- squeezy things that you used to squeeze and make a noise, and it looks like that's what you're putting into your shoe. So as you walk, do you feel your foot squishing against this little device as it creates electricity? It's it's a bit weird, but um, I suppose you know it is taking the energy that you're expound- using to walk, and it turns it into electricity. So if they can develop it further, it, it's got to be a good thing because we do walk around. Well, we should be. Yeah, we should be doing 10,000 steps a day. That's right. Yes. Mm. Well, but it seems like... So this is from Stretch Sense, isn't it, who um, who we've heard of in the past, and they're, um, they're tying this back into 
um, their existing wearable technology. So it doesn't generate a lot of electricity, does it? Yeah, it seems to generate enough electricity to power the sensors um, for people to use while they're, they're moving around. But I don't, I'm not sure that, the, that what it's sensing is different. It's the, the the leap forward is not having to then go home and charge it. Is that right? Like it just it doesn't seem like they're, they're sensing something new with this with this announcement. No, so I think and and yeah, the, so their their technology is around sort of measuring those movements and being able to see. There's a demo video has been online for a couple of years that we had a look at earlier that sort of uh, you know shows how wearing wearing the stretch sense technology can track all your finger movements and bending and, and so on of your fingers. The, I guess the point is that stuff doesn't need a whole lot of power. So if you can have something that you wear, whether it's in your shoes or, or otherwise, to uh, generate enough electricity, then it makes that whole process a whole lot easier because we've got a lot of things to charge and we're going to yeah. have a lot more if we end up with tech in our clothes and mm. our shoes and our... I mean, we're told we're going to have 50 billion internet of things devices i think by 2025 if i've got my you have uh, my guesstimates uh, correct except yes. i heard so, a new number today oh, 80 yes. billion 80 billion by 2025 so if it's mm-hmm. if we don't have to plug yeah. in 80 billion devices if you work that out based on population you know that's at least sort of you know 10 10 things per head yeah uh, so if these things can figure out their way to power themselves by movement by the sun or whatever uh, that's got to be helpful yeah, you'd think so. I just want to be able to keep my phone going for the whole day because it still doesn't last for a whole day for me. So and this isn't going to help me because it doesn't give you enough electricity to charge your iPhone or your Samsung phone or your Android. It doesn't give you enough for that. Yeah. Well, so, that's just the first step. Who knows? Well, of course, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. There's a lot of energy around us, isn't there? So we will no doubt work out something, better, better I ways I to shouldn't make um, up data or facts in. but isn't it something like the amount of the energy from the sun each day that falls on the earth is enough to to power the current power usage for a year or something is it i feel like that's right could be a lie it could it could be a lie could be a lie it could, could be, be right a, it could be we a lie we don't know but i know that the amount of power from the sun we tap into such a ridiculously small amount yeah. of it um, Talking that about could, that, could well be the case. On sixty minutes last night, this is a complete segue. They took a view of Apple's new headquarters in Cupertino, the mm-hmm. big donut that they're mm-hmm. building. Mm-hmm. That's going to be off the grid. Really? Yes. Talking about solar power, it's going to have solar panels around the top, and it's going to be completely off the grid and completely powered by its solar panels. Nice. I'm just trying to work out how whether the the maths would add up for them to do just just on its roof or are they going to have other solar panels because that that seems like some real efficiency just to because this is a multi-level building isn't it i mean it's not just one one level probably quite a power intensive building i would guess yeah it's a huge building though i mean i'd have to have a look but they Mm. were talking about it last night about the building itself being completely off the grid when it comes to electricity they'd still have to get water from somewhere but yeah mm. oh that's quite that's quite yes. fascinating it's i mean it's it's good for people to be pushing the the boundaries like that i'm curious how they can um how they can do it but um especially with well i guess the the weather there is, is usually not too bad and well, the California. building is well the other thing was the building is designed in such a way that it will only need to use heating or cooling for three months of the year so nine months of the year will be completely naturally ventilated and kept within temperature and i presume that is partly to do with where it is in california but also the way that they've designed the building and of course you know who's designed the building but it's johnny ives the same guy that's designed the iphone so oh really yes yes. oh my goodness so the glass that's going in there is the largest pieces of curved glass ever made with sweeping views and unbroken vistas out the glass it's going to be an amazing building that none of us will probably ever be allowed into. I'm just trying to work out how do I book a meeting to be in there yeah. when it opens. And also, how's he going to be able cool. to cope with not being able to refresh how it looks every year yeah. or two? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Yes, that's a bit, of, um, a bit of a different approach than what they usually take. Now, in the world of telecommunications, Craig, uh, we'll jump in in a minute to voice over long-term evolution. Mm-hmm. V-O-L-T-E, mm-hmm. but also in, I guess, the um, the telco sort of sector, the Vector Arena in Auckland is 
is going to be rebranded. Spark have taken that over. Spark from next April in 2017. So Spark Arena, that's right. It's part of their push to be known not just as a telco anymore. So it's very much around their partnership. Uh, so, for example, their early partnership with Spotify. So be known as a music content provider. And they're making a lot of play around content and music, and they see this as just an extension of that uh, refocusing of the organisation so that people see Spark as being this hip brand that's connected to entertainment and music. And I I think it's actually not a bad move, Uh, and especially in the Auckland market where uh, traditionally Spark have played second fiddle to Vodafone when it comes to mobile. Mm-hmm. Certainly in other parts of New Zealand, Spark have always been very strong. But in Auckland, Agreed. they have um, often been second when it comes to their share of the market, and in particular in the youth audience in, in Auckland, Vodafone's been incredibly strong. So this is a continued push by Spark to be seen as uh, you know, a viable alternative for young the, the younger generation. And certainly I know in our family I've got – well, they're not teenagers anymore, but they moved from one provider to another just because to get access to free Spotify, for example. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But do you think it worked for Vector? Do you think Vector's seen as like a hip brand because of sponsoring the arena? I don't think so. Vector's in an interesting place because they're a lines company, so we all have to buy our power. Mm. We all buy it. We buy it off a retailer. It gets delivered by Vector, but it's not. They don't have anything to particularly sell. So it's always very interesting when you look at branding and sponsorship so when it comes to wholesale providers like the lines companies or even if we like the choruses, the enables, the fibre companies. So I think I saw, I watched a Crusaders game on Friday night and there's signage around the field with enable networks. Well, you can't ring enable and order a fibre service into your house tomorrow. You've got to ring a retail service provider. So I'm always a little bit unsure about the value of wholesalers or intermediaries actually advertising directly to consumers. Mm. Um, I'm quite happy for them to support organisations like mine, but because um, <laughs> we're... You, you, know, you want their money, but you wouldn't, wouldn't want them passing it on to, um, to a venue. Well... If they could pass it yeah, on in your I, direction. Well, I couldn't see the value. I mean, certainly yeah, I no, see the I value can, of Spark being on that sort of thing, yeah. That, I mean, that certainly was my thought. I, th- I would think Spark would get more out of, out of this than... Um, than what Victor would have done. It seems like a, a good mm. partnership. Well, the other thing, of course, is you, you've now got other ways of delivering content. Spark will be able to leverage it if they can because they've got an in. If there's a concert or something going on inside the arena, will that enable Spark to get access to broadcasting some of that content across their network rather than it necessarily going or not coming out? So their digital technology and the stuff that they're developing it seems to me there is some possibilities in this. Yeah, I'll be mm. curious to see. V-O-L-T-E, Voice <laughs> Over Long-Term Evolution. Yeah, well, this is an interesting one. put it one. out in full. Yeah, well, we were talking before, weren't we, about batteries and, and phones lasting all day. One of the biggest demands on your phone, on your cell phone these days, at the moment in New Zealand, is you've got a number of radios actually going at the same time. We, we, we sort of think it's a phone and it connects to the mobile network, but actually it's connecting to multiple mobile networks. You know, there's voice, so when you make a phone call, there's data when you surf the internet, and then there's text messages. So they're all running over different parts of the network. And at the moment in New Zealand, whenever you make a voice call, it's carried over the 3G part of the network. doesn't matter whether you've connected in 4G or not. It's always carried over 3G. What about 2G? Uh, well, if you've got a 2G phone, yes, right. Okay, if you've still got a 2G phone, then you perhaps you better think about getting a new one. <laughs> um, the In Australia, the three networks, Optus, Telstra and Vodafone, have all announced that they're offering voice over LTE, which is really just voice over the 4G network. And so your phone only uses will only need to use the 4G radio in the phone. Therefore, have almost, well, I haven't seen the numbers, but certainly reducing the battery drain mm. because one of the radios isn't actually needing to be used. The interesting thing in Australia is it's only if you're on Telstra can you use an iOS device for voice over LTE. The other two networks are only making it available for Sam, certain Samsung handsets. And we had the conversation beforehand about how does the network know what sort of device is on the other end. These, dev- these networks are incredibly clever. They 
they're pinging your phone all the time and and they know what sort of chips in it and, and what's happening. So that's how it works. Yeah, that'll be. Cu- I'm curious to to find out the realities of that. Whether it's more a marketing type yeah, arrangement yeah. or whether there are because these things should be standard. And if your phone supports that standard, mm. that should work. It shouldn't matter whether it's a Samsung or a Apple or a Microsoft phone. Even if it's yeah, it's really it, interesting it should, strategically yeah. to make that part of the part of the process. Mm. In New Zealand, we haven't seen. We've seen trials of voice over LTE, so we know that, that the networks can do it. And we have, at two hands, we've talked to the networks and asked them, when are you launching voice over LTE? They've all said sometime in the future. So we're still waiting to hear announcements from them as to when they would launch the service. I mean, obviously, the networks that they own are up to date and they can update the software on the networks very easily. So actually rolling out voice over LTE isn't a huge change to the networks. What tends to happen, though, doesn't it, is one will jump on board with some innovation. I think I'm trying to think what happened when Vodafone launched their their HD high definition voice. What the flow on was that from a, from a competition perspective? But you know, usually one network likes to be ahead of the others, but uh, they're never ahead for too long because no no one likes to be at the tail end, do they? Last year we had big arguments between particular two big mobile companies as to who had the biggest network, and as words, the most coverage. And both of them used different measures to say that they were the biggest network. So you take those sorts of things with a grain of salt. Yes, it's a bit, it's a bit of a challenging one on the coverage one to really uh, prove one way or the other, isn't it? It certainly is, and I've been very engaged in the last couple of weeks on rural broadband and, and mobile coverage. We had a big conference, and then I was part of a, a group last week that was looking at policy that we wanted around rural connectivity. And certainly when you talk to real people who live and work in rural New Zealand, they know exactly which network has the best coverage in their area, and they know which mobile company they want to use in their particular valley or town because word gets around, you know, it's no good using this particular network here because the coverage is rubbish, so you use another one, so yeah. And interestingly, we've had, um, you know, in the past an organisation would generally have an arrangement with one telco, uh, but now you've kind of got that flexibility because all of the telcos have these sort of unlimited all-you-can-eat plans, you're not required to have well our company's with this and so you've got to be within this calling group and so on to be able to call each other so organizations can actually sort of split up and say well look you know we have our general you know users on one network because it's lower cost um so you could imagine people you know jumping across to two degrees for you know the bulk of their staff and then saying look if anyone has an issue you can be on any actually any network you like and we'll move you across to the equivalent sort of all you you know all you can eat plan on on another network now a little bit more work from an accounting and account management perspective and and so on but uh, I can see that sort of thing happening which never would have you know no one probably would have ever considered in in the future well, it's um, only a few years since we've been able to actually take our numbers with yes, us oh my goodness. so you know the old 027021 thing you don't know which network you're now ringing it doesn't matter what yeah. number it is and thankfully now it doesn't matter because we're getting packages of minutes depend no matter what the network is so you know things have moved quite quickly in that space i think the other thing that's probably going to make a, a big shift is the whole byod bring your own device move so if you bring your own phone does that mean you hook it up to the network that you want and then I know there are some corporates that are simply now saying you choose the carrier and the provider and we will give you a certain amount of credit every month to the same value so that actually makes it easier for the corporate because they don't have to go and get a corporate deal now they're just simply passing that on to the individual consumer who then takes the package they want and the phone that they want as long as they promise to be contactable from the organisation. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting though, the whole BYOD thing, because I um, conceptually thought, oh, that's amazing. Everyone can just pick their own personal preference and then channeling my CTO, Rob Isaac, um, realising that comes to quite a nightmare when it comes to support and, and system support. And and so what we're talking about with our policy with Figure NZ is to have um, like a, have options. And like these are the three kind of approved options for different types of devices but then to, to do definitely constrain the, the types that people can get so that it's not a nightmare to look after them. Are you also putting in your policy issues around security, password setting and all those sorts of things as well? Yeah. Because if you're carrying corporate data on your personal phone, then I think you do need to think seriously about enforcing the requirement to have 
you know, four or six digit passwords on your phone because, I mean, I, I had breakfast with someone this morning that works for a corporate who lost their phone on Friday night. Let's not talk about how late it was in the night and which taxi it was, but even so, that phone had all her banking details and all yeah. that sort of thing. So she went and changed all those. But then you think about it also had connectivity back into her email, all those sorts of it's things so as well. It's interesting. It's mm. one of the things that at the Cyber Security Summit, thinking about uh, last week, this week? What's last today? Week. Last week. <laughs> um, that all of the, everything falls down when it comes to behaviour, right? Like mm. it, it, you can you can build lots of systems and, and technically secure things pretty, like you know relatively well. But then when it comes to behaviour, I think one of the you know, one of the important things that Rob has kind of taught and encouraged in our team is if you get up, close your laptop. Like just close the lid, even if you're just going away for a few moments, because it's just a good practice to be in and it's things like that that we don't really widely share about um, just normal kind of behaviour with how we deal with our own technology. Yeah, there are lots of those practices that are that are really important. And as you say, Lillian, the BYOD can really bring some complexities to it. So I also quite like that approach of giving people some options. And, of course, it's going to vary from organisation to organisation what really works. Yeah. But... I think there's a lot of wisdom in that in an organisation, you know, completely owning and being able to decide how they lock down their systems and so on. And, yeah, you're closing your laptop is, is a good one or on, on, you know, Windows, your Windows L key to lock your screen if you want to leave it open and, and what have you. But teaching people those those things yeah. and uh, around cyber security is, is, is pretty critical. Totally. Um, that, that the education gets out there on, uh, I mean, th- there are lots of aspects to it, but... Um, yeah, if you leave a, an uneducated workforce to um, to bear the brunt of, of some of those those attacks that come through and everybody gets those little phishing emails and so on where we haven't quite worked out how to block all of them yet, right? Yeah, and if, I don't know if you've talked to Rich and Nicole who are the, the founders of um, The Starter, which is a New Zealand startup, and they're looking exactly to kind of help businesses in particular with addressing this kind of issue where you know, you've, you might have a team of a thousand or however many people, and people are just signing up to accounts all over the place and just loading up information. Oh, there's a new there's a new piece of technology, and so they're building a a way of being able to kind of track and and detect and lock down that kind of that thing based on the human behaviour mm-hmm. kind of errors and things that we do. It's, yeah, it's really fascinating watching how their technology is is evolving. Yeah, that's, that sounds interesting. I'll definitely have to look yeah, that, that one up. And I mean, for smaller organisations, you know, sometimes it just comes down to you know, educating and having policy around some of those things. The bigger an organisation gets, the more you can put technology in to help with that, the, the better, because people don't always follow the Yeah, it's so the, funny. The like I, yeah, I gave the, the organisation credit card to someone today to go and buy something, and I was like, what is the best way for me to give you the password, like the PIN number for this? Mm-hmm. And you're sitting there going, oh... You know what is what is the best way? There are just you're used to just writing it down on a post-it note and handing it to someone, and um, just trying to put that lens of what is the actual best behaviour. Probably just not to give it at all, but mm. well, it's too constraining, and so we just end up doing workarounds of you know dodgy kind of behaviour. And the sorts of, uh, I mean, quite commonly, I'll I'll see it whether it's when when my company Gorilla is doing a an IT audit, or you know we're working working with a new company, and you you find the sort of shambles of, oh, yeah, somebody went and signed up for X, Y, Z X number mm. of years ago, but the credit card must have expired and what credit card yeah. they put it under or what email address. There was one the other day for a reasonably sizable, you know, well-known New Zealand organisation and we were just having a look at how they'd set up their domain names and the you know the domain name was registered under an individual person's um, name or email address so you know when that person's gone if no one picks it up then those you know renewal bits and pieces and so on could bounce we saw another one with um, an organization that was wanting some help and their their domain name wasn't even registered to them it was registered to the 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 designer that had set up their website and they they had no legal ownership of it so there's all these sorts of things things we do Last year, I think, um, yeah, I sat down with my CTO and spent, we, the two of us spent two days together opening up accounts and putting things into one password and then using Zoho Vault to be able to share passwords and things like that. And it was so time consuming, but so valuable when you just, especially in the early days of setting up an organization, you don't pause to do that. 
you just go, oh, I'll whack mm. it on this card, I'll get to it later. And I've been reflecting recently that if I, you know, if I was investing in an organisation starting up, I would probably want to go, you know, spend your first 20K on your security, your technology and in your legal fees and structure and then, and then get going because unwinding some of your dumb decisions um, is, is not fun. It's time-consuming and expensive yeah. and not fun. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Cool. Now, a few other things that we want to chat about. So the Cybersecurity uh, Summit, um, Craig, you were there for the whole thing. I got there for some of it. We've got a special episode uh, coming up with Richard uh, Baitlick, who's the Chief Security uh, Strategist at FireEye, who was talking there. But were there any particular points that you wanted to... Uh, you wanted to highlight from the um, the cybersecurity summit. Now, this is a, is a government initiative, isn't it? It is. Um, it is. I think there was a couple of things. One is that we shouldn't rest in our laurels. I picked up uh, already Lillian's comment about it comes down to human and human processes a lot of the time. But also the other thing we need to remember is it's dynamic. It doesn't stop. So when you've done something one day, because to, to put some security in place, that you, you shouldn't stop and say, well, that's it for the next two years or three years. I don't have to worry about it anymore because the whole thing just keeps changing and there's enough out there, that enough to scare us, that we, we ought to just keep on top of it. So I think some numbers I saw, something about it costing New Zealand $257 million last year in, in lost revenue and in actual losses through cybersecurity. In I thought it was closer to half a billion. Oh, oh, maybe yeah, I, I, thought, I think you're right. Could be wrong. Might have been in the. I more, I'm just reading the minister's press release. Oh, she said oh, 257. Okay. Oh, okay. I stand yeah, corrected if right. you've got the documents that's in front right. of you, Craig. Um, and the other one was NetSafe saying, you know, there's 25. They see 25 attacks a day happening. I saw a map, and I can't recall where it is now, but that you can look at to see some of the denial of service attacks going around. The world. It looks like Star Wars. There's just these yeah. pings going everywhere all the time. You know, it's. The other the other thing, and it wasn't mentioned last week, but it was something that we said we did a we did an after five for um, cybersecurity end of last year, and they were talking about, you know, we think of ourselves as being quite safe at the bottom of the world because we think we're so far away from everybody, but actually we're only fourteen point one four seconds from Washington when it comes to the internet. Mm. So you know we're not far away when it comes to technology and being online. And there are people sitting in other parts of the world that are looking to either attack our systems or attack through our systems to somebody else. It doesn't matter where they are. Yeah, we're a fraction of a second away from, from anyone else That's in, right. in, in the world. And um, so I was just going to yeah. try the space bit in there, but, um, you know, we won't go down that track today. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll get lost. Yeah, um, and so it's not necessarily us that are being attacked either, but we're mm-hmm. being our systems or our individual accounts are being used to attack somebody else. So, you know, you, you do have to be a little bit mindful. And I was asked, you know, there's, so you, you can be a corporate, so you've got lots of things happening inside corporates. You can be a small and medium enterprise, which is what certainly we are, and we need to be aware of our systems. And then you've got individuals, of course, you know. So at the weekend, saw an example in a trust that I'm, up, that I'm working with. We had one of those... Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's where you get an email and it looks like it's come from your CEO. Called whaling. That, that's whaling the whaling attack. attack. Yeah, yeah, so we had a whaling fishing. attack, yeah. and it said, you know, it looked really proper. So the the admin person said yes, um, replied to the email and said, yep, I'll do that and I'll set it up and pay the couple of thousand dollars, whatever account it was. And those of us that had to authorise it went, oh, this doesn't look right, and then we tracked it back. Mm, I guess it my biggest question there is, you still use email? <laughs> Uh-huh. Yes, we do. So, you know, it is, it's um, something that we all have to watch out mm, for. Mm. Yeah, there were a couple of uh, take-homes for me. One was just that, that huge figure, and the other was that, and I guess it goes hand-in-hand hand with that the government were putting on the Cyber Security mm. Summit, and they don't usually get involved in something unless there's some sort of benefit to the country and so it really highlights that this is really really important this isn't just something that they're doing for a bit of fun or it's some way of winning votes i don't see that playing any you know any part of it it's actually really important that that we get ahead around these cyber security things that we get educated and that we start getting serious about protecting uh, new zealand organizations from from these threats and realizing that Actually, they're costing us a huge amount of money, mm. and and those numbers that were mentioned, it may not, you know, 
sound a lot, but you know it's still um, a reasonable amount uh, per head. Well, when you're a small enterprise, five thousand dollars here actually does count, you know, significantly. Yeah. So yeah. it's one of the our six key priorities this year that we're de- working with is you know the whole what does cybersecurity and privacy mean to business and small and medium enterprises? Because cybersecurity sounds like it's big and mean and it's corporate and, you know, we've all seen the movies with the hackers and all that sort of stuff, but actually it applies to everybody. It does, yeah. yeah. yeah I think the language is a big problem. Like it's like mm. when people talk about big data or internet of things, like there's those of us that are, you know, involved daily in, in some of it and understand it, but for most people it's pretty off-putting like cyber security when I was like what what exactly is it and then mm-hmm. you know the, the concepts are actually pretty simple and um and I think we could do something about changing the language mm. with the with the mm. summit last week found it interesting that that it didn't seem to bring in a lot of um the people that are kind of working you know a bit more fragmented around New Zealand on this like there's the whole KiwiCon conference that's every year and I don't and I know there was a lot of um, questioning about why that they kind of weren't talking to each other and and I think that one of the things that will make us safest as a country and things is when we're all really working together and to, to solve, because there's such different lenses, like the content that I was there for um, and the panel that I was on, like I, th- I thought it was really valuable, like the, the summit seemed awesome and, and I really en- especially enjoyed some of the international speakers that came across, um, but that's only one lens, right? And, th- and then there are so many other lenses that we should be mm. looking through. I thought the speakers were brilliant, but the, the bit that wor- really worked for me was... Um, in the afternoon, we broke up into workshops and we actually workshopped how could we make an impact and, and what were the sort of things that we could do as organisations and businesses to help not only ourselves but individuals and other people to get their head around this thing called cyber security. So mm. there's some exciting developments that I think you know could happen. Uh, it just depends on how it plays out. Yeah, and I think one of the things for people, either like directors on boards or people running organisations, is to not just kind of look at the technical people and say, make it safe, <laughs> but actually kind of really seek to understand and listen to the issues. And instead of saying, you know, what's our biggest risk and how are you going to solve it, say in a like a listening way, like what is keeping you up at night and how can I help you to address that? And I think it's... It's interesting when you have a kind of more of a culture of fear. If someone does something dumb and clicks on a link um, and just unknowingly, if you don't feel like you can just go, oh, heck, have I done something wrong? Then you're actually like creating a bigger problem. And so it's that culture and how we talk about it and how we um, make it safe for people to surface their their behaviour rather than feeling like they need to squash it. I think that's actually going to go a long way into, into how we address it. I agree. Oh, good. Really, some really good points there. I'd love to drill down a little bit more, but we, we, we don't really have time. So for those that are interested in, in hearing a bit more on the subject, um, we have a new episode of the New Zealand Business Podcast that will be out in the next few days with Richard Baitlick, as I mentioned, that is worth uh, worth listening to. So this is, I mean, this is very much a business topic as much it as, it, as it relates to technology and, and so on. So we've uh, we've landed it there. But... Lillian, I wanted to hear about figure.nz. All right. Um, what would you like to know? Because I could talk for hours, so I will restrain, retain myself. Well, I've heard you talk for hours too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought we could start just with a, a little bit of an overview. How long since you've founded the organisation? You've, yeah. you've been through some branding changes, but but really why you exist, what, what your purpose is, and... Um, what is available in terms of resources that you're sharing with, with New Zealanders and that might be relevant to our listeners? Yeah, so the, the, the purpose of Figure NZ is actually to empower New Zealand to be as awesome as we know it can be. So it's just, you know, like a small goal. <laughs> but if you drill down and go, so why data? Because so, what we're actually doing is creating a data democracy and pulling a whole lot of data that's collected around the country through public sector, private sector, academia, pulling it into one place on figure.nz and making it available in a whole variety of formats. So whether it's in, in really simple graphs, we've got about 25,000 of those, um, about, we've got about 600 maps I think at the moment, and CSV tables and, um, and a public API, which is broken at the moment consciously, but it will be back soon. And, um, but, so it's the, but the reason for why we think data is important and why we're focusing on it so much is if you think about you know, the world and the context that we're living in and the changes that we're going through, up until 10 years or so ago, the whole the world it was hard to share information widely 
And it was also hard to communicate in multiple directions. And I know we all know this, but it's interesting when you think about what the implications of that are. And so in that world, the best future was created by having a few great leaders. So the information would go to a few people who would kind of decide what what the best direction is and then and then kind of tell everyone, share the vision and mobilize people in that direction. And and now we live in a world where for the first time in history, it's actually really easy to share information widely and it's easy <clears throat> to to share, to communicate in multiple directions. And at the core, we at Figure NZ, um, we believe that the best future is now created by everyone making different, uh, being able to make good informed decisions. And that's, it's not that we've been doing wrong before, it's just when you think about it, we've just never been able to behave in certain ways before that technology is really enabling. And I think that, that we're so, we're just such a short distance into really understanding what technology means in terms of our behaviour and how we can organise ourselves differently and make decisions differently and communicate differently. And almost to date all we've done is replicate what we did in the real world and doing it online and then now you know you use things like slack and other things where your behavior starts changing because you start communicating and sharing information differently it's like oh that's so fascinating and so so in terms of in that world if we want everyone to make great decisions um, and what's required there are, there's a lot of things required in terms of you know following your instinct and experience and cultures without fear but one of the big gaps is people's ability to use numbers and data in terms of how they think about things. So whether it's a, a seven-year-old writing a story and saying, oh, I got a new Labrador on the weekend and there's 46 Labradors in my town and there's fewer in Napier, um, or whether it's a, a florist in Nelson saying, oh, I wonder what the trends are for funerals and weddings in my town and when I should be marketing in, in different ways, just for people to actually be able to use numbers as as part of how they think and so the culture shift is essentially, you know, we didn't, not everyone used to be able to read and we used to believe not everyone was capable of reading and we've broken that model now. We absolutely believe everyone can read and we achieve that standard, but we haven't made that that transition with numbers and with data yet. And so that's that's what we're working to do and we, you know, the way that we actually go about achieving that is, is through the, the site, figure.nz, we work um, really closely with people like government agencies to to get their data and to make it usable they become our customers so we're working to be the publishing platform of choice for people with data and so our revenue stream is for people to to pay to make their data usable so that then it's free for everyone to use because part of what's so valuable is being able to stumble across data in areas that you would never know to ask the questions on like I someone looked at a map the other day that we've got that shows um, the num- the proportion of households with internet access and they looked at it and said oh but doesn't everyone have the internet? And and that kind of reaction, you're like, ah, oh, it's so valuable looking at stuff without knowing the questions to ask. Yeah, so that's that's a short version. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, and I mean, who who are you finding are, are commonly getting in and taking advantage of the the data? Oh, it's such a it's such a wide variety and. So whether it's um, you know media as a user, like looking to understand the context of, of something, the story that they're writing, whether it's data experts wanting to search on our site and then know where to drill down further in the same model of when you look at Wikipedia, even if you're an expert researcher, you'll often start with a Wikipedia page and then go, oh, and that's where I should go. Whether it is uh, people at, at schools, teachers or students, um, industry body groups, Craig, for example, um, or people that are wanting to make presentations and and include data in what they're, they're showing. So all of our content, you can you can take the graphs as is, put them in your presentation, and you know you have the license to do that. And um, it's yeah, it is interesting how well I'm yet to meet somebody that I can't get excited about the use of data and, and graphs and numbers. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And so, how how did you get off the ground? And um, how many people have you got that are making it all happen now? Yeah, so I first had the idea four years ago and originally launched as Wiki New Zealand and rebranded to Figure NZ last year. The original name was because I thought, ah, oh, so like I'd been working for a think tank and um, the New Zealand Institute and prior to that um, massive software, so I had a bit of a technology lens and then when I came to work at the New Zealand Institute realised, heck, there is so much data, there are thousands of data sets that hold stories about our country and I didn't know that, so I came to it with a really naive new lens. And so once I, I started seeing it, I was like, why on earth aren't we using this? And and that kind of is what led to the idea. I was thinking, you know, we're so constrained because 
to use data at the moment, well, before Figure NZ, you had to engage an expert. You had to pay for somebody. You'd had to have a specific research question and get somebody to go in and know where to look and to find the right data and to pull it into a report. And it was a very kind of static, one-off kind of experience. And it's like, imagine... You know, if there was a way for everyone in New Zealand to be just constantly across the numbers as a lens of understanding the shape of our country and the context. And so then as a society or as companies or communities or whatever, we could move from instead of debating what what the current performance is and which numbers are right and, and what the situation is, that we start moving to debating about what do we care about, what do we want to create what's our vision and how do we get there and kind of shifting that that mindset. So that's what led me to go, oh, this is actually something that needs to exist and it's the most important thing I can do with my time. Um, in terms of the team, so there's, well, there's kind of between five and 13 of us, it depends on how you look at it. There are 13 that are involved kind of on a daily basis in our Slack channel. There are five full-time employees, three half-time and, and the rest um, fluctuate depending on what we can afford. Yeah, and so, and so it's made up of um, so our, our tech, our tech team, our data team, product, and and um, pretty light at the moment on the the outreach comm side. That's mostly um, myself and and Hayden Glass, but we're we're actually looking at how we can structure the comms and outreach a little bit differently, and instead of having just one or two experts going. Every person in our team has a lens that's really valuable. Like I think of um, Nat Dudley, head of design, who spent a good good number of hours going, what colours should we use so that the, the design is, is suitable for colour blindness? Like she should be communicating that, right? Like So mm. we should all be communicating the different lens. Like mm. why are we structuring data in a certain way that every everyone in the organisation um, can have a, like a, I said, I don't know, 5% of, of their time to communicate um, and the other part of that is all of us spending 5% of our time, um, or more if you're in a different role, getting user testing and, and pulling information back into the organisation and instead of just having specialised roles, have that as something that everybody's involved in. That's good. Craig, um, you use a bit of this data from yeah, we, time to time. You seem to be a, a bit of a regular visitor from what we were discussing yeah. earlier. Yeah, we we do. And, and I often go on there if I'm looking for something that might be a little bit different from what I normally know and I use it in a presentation. But we also, about um, 12 months ago, did a survey ourselves of our membership uh, and some small and medium enterprises around uptake of fibre and use of services. And we gave that data to figure.nz to analyse and put up on their website. So if you go to figure.nz and type in two ends, you'll find our data up there. And I can go there and use that um, whenever I want to as well. So, you know, there's real value in making that information available, not only for us as an organisation, but for our members as well. That's great. So amongst our amongst our listeners, I'm sure there are some whose organisations have lots of data that maybe they could be feeding in your direction there, Lillian, and I'm sure probably everybody could take advantage of, of what you've got up there as well. Yeah, and I'd love to hear from people, organisations that are wanting to make their data usable. All our contact details are on our, on our site. Great. Oh, that's really good. Well, we had one last thing to chat about before the end of the podcast, um, and it's just come in this afternoon, which is why I wanted to, to squeeze it in. Huawei's new P9 smartphone, and Last year, when they launched their uh, their P8, it was sort of a it was a little bit of a moment for them because they were they were a name that had been slowly coming onto the the radar and quite a nice handset there. And uh, now with this P9, which I think launches in New Zealand uh, next month, we're still waiting for all the details. But um, it looks like they've they've once again come up with what is a pretty slick uh, handset that no doubt will be pretty competitively priced and will help them win a bit more market share. And I guess. It's part of that sort of changing landscape that we're that we're seeing in New Zealand away from just the traditional brands that we've that we've always um, seen. Craig, you had a little little look at it. I mean, we haven't dived in too much. They're they're, they're touting a partnership with uh, Leica on the uh, the lens, and there's been a bit of a debate online around whether that's just a marketing partnership. Although they, you know, they've they've highlighted they've spent a lot of time working with Leica to get a good camera, and I mean, it looks like quite a capable um, capable handset. How does it feel to you? It looks like a really nice handset actually, and I've just compared it to size. I've got a iPhone six, and it's a similar sort of size. Over Christmas, I actually used the Nexus, the Huawei Nexus phone, and really loved it. It was um, the only reason I don't have it at the moment is because it was so big and it was a pre-production phone, so I needed to give it back because the battery yep. wasn't lasting properly. But, yep. you know, 
it's um, they really are doing well in getting into that handset space. Very tidy and cost and cost effective entry points as well. Uh, Huawei, so you're not paying over the over the odds for a really nice, decent phone. And and the other thing I would say is, we are Google. Everything's through Gmail, Google Drive, Google Calendar. So it doesn't matter what device you're running. As soon as you log in to your Gmail account, Google account, it all syncs up anyway. You so can get the data moving, you need. And moving from one device to another mm. isn't as hard as it used to be. And this almost ties back to our first conversation about the podcasts. And it if does. you think about, you know, what's the value for Apple? You know, they're not getting a revenue stream exactly from the podcast, but it's with the devices. Like, it is a beautiful phone and... Um, but if it was sitting there in a lineup with phones that people have had for a while, I wouldn't be able to pick it out. But it, it you know, it's lovely and it feels good to hold and and takes good photos and things. But it, but then so then the value add comes from so what services can you get that you can't get on any other phone, and what's going to be the deciding point um, of of what makes you switch between devices? Yeah, I mean we're certainly we're certainly moving into a world where that gets easier and easier, doesn't it? And the the lines the lines are. Um are blurring, but we'll we'll have a chat about that and on another episode. We'll have a little bit more uh, more time to have a look at it, but it um, it looks nice. All right, well that's us for this week. Well, thank you both for joining me on the show. Much appreciated. Now, Craig, best way for uh, for people to track you down? Uh, our website twoends.org.nz, or I'm on Twitter at twoendsceo. Same on Facebook, twoendsceo. Nice. What are you going to do when your job changes one day? You can't mm-hmm. be that for forever, can you? Oh, I'll have to give that to someone else to do. <laughs> Succession planning. We'll have to start thinking about it. Not too soon, I hope. No. Lillian? Yeah, so at figure.nz, and that's where all our contact details are. And on Twitter, I'm at Graceful Lillian. Well worth following both of them. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter as well, at Paul Spain. You can find our podcasts at podcasts.nz. We've got a new podcast launching very soon called Kitchens Without Boundaries, which if you're into food and into people, it's all about how food can bring people together, which is quite a going to be quite a cool podcast i've listened to some episodes we've already got there's been a lot of episodes already recorded in the studio over the last few weeks so um we've already got a few months worth of uh, of content there and there's a few other podcasts that'll be coming through on the next little while as well so hey thanks everyone for listening in we will catch you again next week all right see ya the new zealand tech podcast brought to you by gorilla technology proactive and strategic it